Hello and welcome to episode number 334 of the Armin Show podcast. We have been learning more, meeting people, understanding about science, creativity, nonfiction, authors, prolific individuals. These are the things I like to support and will continue to do so in the future. On our show today, we have a guest who is related to a past guest. I will go into that. But first, we have Professor Sheila Jasanoff. She is Forzheimer Professor of Science and Technology Studies at the Harvard Kennedy School, has authored more than 130 articles and chapters, many books, more than 15 books, including the one we'll be talking about today. Also, The Ethics of Invention, which was just a few years ago, and a lot of prolific nature. Sheila, welcome to the show. Thanks, Armin. I'm delighted to follow in my son's footsteps. This is a wonderful thing. I will mention that that was on episode 206, Professor Alan Jasanoff of MIT. We spoke about the biological mind and whatnot. He was one of the earliest episodes I had where I switched to professors and authors. Before that, I was more speaking to individuals I knew or some people from the blogging or personal development world. So he was one of the early people that I was like, okay, this is great. I can transition to something that is even more uh, interesting or enlightening. That's a wonderful thing. Before we get into the episode, can you tell us a little bit about Alan and or your academic family? Thanks, Armin. We are a somewhat unusual academic family because my husband, myself, and our two children are all academics. That in itself may not be so unusual because people do career-wise tend often to follow in their parents' footsteps, but we're also all located in the Cambridge area. So my son is at MIT. He likes to joke that he is the black sheep of the family because uh, my husband and my daughter and I all teach at Harvard. But but we teach very different subjects. I mean, so my son is a scientist, pure and simple. Uh, my daughter is a historian. My husband is a linguist who studies ancient and dead languages. And I am the interdisciplinarian because I study the linkages between science and technology and society. But my training is in law. So I also have that professional background. Mm -hmm. When I was looking at that grouping, I was thinking, are you the proponent that has led to a variety of academia being pursued? Are you a key point of that? And also, is that why you are you have built that at, at Harvard in the science and technology studies? Rung? Well, I absolutely would not want to say that I've led the way. I think my husband was cut out to be an academic even before I was, because when I went to law school back in the 70s, I actually didn't think that I would end up in academia. Um, but then uh, chance led us to Cornell University, which actually didn't have the scope for doing the law practice I had trained for. I was trained as an environmental, well, my first job out of law school was in environmental law. And Ithaca is too small a town for the practice of environmental law. So I ended up becoming attached to the university. As far as my children are concerned, they found their own ways there. I'm sure it didn't hurt that they saw that the academic life offers a kind of freedom to set your own agenda in certain ways, even though we work extremely hard and, you know, have all sorts of constraints. Nevertheless, it's not, it's not like in a 
profession where you're working for a client and the client decides what the problem is. And I think that's been important to all four of us that we are in fields where we don't have to pick and choose uh, in accordance with somebody else's desires. We're free to pursue to some extent the questions that interest us. Of course, not totally, but but I think that that's something that they that our kids saw as they were growing up, and I think that was certainly part of the inducement for them. When I think of your region, I think of it as somewhat of an educational hub. Is it one of the main regions that could have ended up being where you all were situated? Does the United States have so many other regions that are as academic in the same way as your local region? Yeah, so it may interest you that right now I'm teaching a course called Numbers and in Policy and Society uh, to undergraduates at Harvard and the general education program. And we begin by, in part, thinking about coincidences. And I think that there is a huge set of coincidences. I mean, yes, there are geographic hubs and we could have ended up in other places. Um, it's pretty fortuitous that four people should find tenure homes in this area. It doesn't happen that often, and it's not, it's not a play by the odds thing. But in my own history, my husband and I ended up being professors at Cornell, and my brother was on the Cornell faculty. <laughs> so in fact, my nephew and niece and my own two kids went to the same high school and went to the same college. And I think that's also a kind of chancy thing. And I don't think you can explain that. I mean, we could have ended up, you know, in Atlanta or in Berkeley or in Chicago. And, you know, it's just that we didn't in some sense. That makes sense. I recently read part of a book that was on counterfactuals and how things could have gone differently in parts of history. And they look at every little, this thing happened, but what if this group won instead? Why didn't they? I think the place where we have choice, even as academics, is how much we court other offers and what offers we accept. So, you know, my all four of us were undergraduates here, and so we feel a kind of ge geographical connection. And I think it's well documented by the data that people often revert to the places where they grew up and where they had their formative experiences. So I think that element is not totally chance. I mean, we're kind of feel affection to, to the Northeast and to the Cambridge, Boston area in particular. Those early years are a big deal. We, we never forget those five to 15, zero to 15, something like that. Now, at Harvard, you have founded and directed the STS program there, which is related to science and technology. What does it take to create a program like that? And why would you do such a thing? Was there not something like that? What was your impetus? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. By the time I came to Harvard, my motivations were already to some extent formed. So you have to go back for answers to when I went to Cornell. And as I mentioned, I was an environmental lawyer, but there wasn't a way to do environmental lawyering. And we went because my husband's job took us to upstate New York, where otherwise I don't think we would have moved. Um, but so I became attached to an existing program on science, technology and society at Cornell. And that had been founded in the late 1960s as a response to the social movements of the time. These included anti-war, they included um, environmental 
uh, movements of different sorts. They included feminism and uh, racial equality, the civil rights movement. So it was a period of movements. And I think in that period, people came to see that the uses of science and technology have consequences for society that nobody was being responsible for. So a big deal was how come Dow Chemical produced napalm and we were using it in a kind of huge untested experiment as a wartime weapon, even though there was a chemical weapons treaty, you know, that said you shouldn't be using these things. So that's just one example. There was nuclear power, there was extreme urbanization, the building of new airports, and, you know, just all kinds of things going on that brought together an anti-war movement, an environmental movement, and an and a movement broadly for civil rights and civil liberties. So by the time I came to Cornell, that program had lost its um, intellectual and creative energy, which had been highest, you know, in the early 1970s. And, you know, I guess this comes from some sort of internal drive that I was always prompted to ask, well, does this make sense? And if so, how does it make sense? And I thought that, yes, it does make sense that, Studying how science and technology fit into society is an important matter. That is something we should all understand because these are forces that shape our lives and shape our existence. So in the 20 years that I was at Cornell, I had the experience of first being in this program, figuring out from inside what it might mean to do research in STS, then directing the program and then building a department. So that building the department added a whole new thing, because then I became responsible for, okay, now I'm training students, I'm giving people a degree in a field, what does that mean? So by the time I came to Harvard in 1998, I already had that experience, and I was really committed to the idea that science and technology in society is a problem area that needs its own uh, structured, focused uh, attention. And so that was the motivation for my forming the program at Harvard. It was just trying in some sense to recreate what by then I felt was a necessity in universities. I like that you mentioned the energy diminishing elsewhere and then why you created it. It's like you want to bring the energy back up in the category that is relevant. When we see something dropping off that doesn't, uh, that we want to be there, it's, it's, it's a call on us to replace that somewhere else or somehow because we have that energy. If we didn't, then we would have never have that call in the first place. It made me think of that when you said that, that uh, I spoke with a chemistry professor in Glasgow, Lee Cronin, and he was talking about how he had conferred many PhDs, like 70 or 75 to chemistry students. And suddenly it's like a, it's a large, not weight, but it's a responsibility because now he's sending out all these individuals into the world to do their research and you are doing the same thing, uh, heading a program in such way. Do you feel like, do you think about the meta effects of each person you pass on? You know, it's very interesting you ask that and also uh, gesture in a way that you um, are kind of calling attention to curves, you know, having impacts in the world. I tend to think of it as a fractal effect that is in visual terms that, you know, I only reach so many students, right? But each one of those is then a pod for going off and recreating something. And the most interesting and um, 
powerful validation of that just recently, very recently, is that somebody who was a fellow in my program has been the spearhead for the first STS department in Germany. And I founded the first STS department in the Ivy League in America. And now this young friend of mine has helped. It's always with somebody else. So I, I really don't like the first person singular pronoun. It, there's always a we back of it. And he is now part of my we in a sense, but he's worked with his colleagues there in Munich uh, at the Technical University of Munich, which is kind of like the MIT of Germany. And they now have a full-fledged department of SDS. And we have a lot of exchanges and you know we're exchanging students back and forth, but they're developing their own ideas. They're going in different directions. They're embedded in another country with different sets of problems. So it's really exciting to see this fractal effect, you know, going off in, in different directions. I think about that concept quite a bit. Fractal is a great way to describe it. it, it, goes, it, it, it the fractal is great because it also takes into account, let's say you bring in a hundred units of energy to something. It's most likely that auxiliary effects will be 50 here, then 20 here, then 10 here. It's not likely that your 100 will lead to a 200 or 300 from somebody else because it's it's more you were the one who brought it forward and then others join along. So the fractal represents it because each one gets a little bit fractionalized. That's a great visual. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna include that it's one. Too, it's too much like a cauliflower, though, in a sense. I mean, you know, you actually end up with ballooning effects in some places and very pointillistic, you know, single person type of effects in other places. But the really strong thing here is that there is a multiplier effect. I mean, the more I teach, the more I think that that is the part that draws me because, you know, I've been blessed to teach at some of the leading universities in the world. I mean, to my two tenure homes have been Cornell and Harvard and how much more blessed can you get than that, right? Um, so I meet some extraordinary young minds. I mean, I teach people who quite frankly are able to do things when they're undergrads that even though I was a Harvard undergrad, I don't think I would ever have been that competent, you know? So, so it's a kind of humbling and also enabling effect that that you're able to set loose these bursts of energy into the world that will do their own thing. Are there any people who, when you were very early on, somebody said focus on like the 20s, let's say around the 20s or early around then, people that you looked at and you said, that's something I'd like to go towards or mimic, or they're saying something and because they're saying it, I feel like I, I should go towards that. Does anybody come to mind? Well, not not really, because I've jumped around in my field. I was a math undergraduate, and then I was a graduate student in linguistics, and then eventually I went to law school, and then arguably I was at the spearhead of inventing an all-new field, so there weren't mentors in that sense. But there was clearly a role modeling from the family. My parents grew up in the Indian independence generation, and so from them, I had examples of people who were risk takers to some extent and and who had liberal values of a deep-seated sort and then I was fortunate to land in my life partnership at a very early age I mean I met my husband when I was just 19 and then you know we didn't get attached immediately but you know we've spent a 
the majority, vast majority of our lives together. So I think it was more that kind of partnership with a shared set of values gradually growing and encompassing children and then encompassing students and colleagues and so forth. So although it's not conventional to say that your spouse is a role model in some sense, and it isn't even exactly right, but it's like a shared ethos evolved about responsibility, about what we were doing in the world. And, and that obviously has proved extremely important to this day when we write anything sort of uh, professionally significant. I mean, not our papers and articles, but, you know, like letters to colleagues or, you know, departmental review things, we very often pass them to each other to get a judgment call on, you know, is this being framed in the right way? So I think we're very fortunate in that. Uh, I actually had the pleasure of proofreading, not proofreading, read, critically reading the manuscripts of both of my kids' first books. So, you know, that that's another sort of illustration of how this kind of shared ethos and, you know, shared sensibility has played out in our family. I was reading about that yesterday, how with individuals you're with, let's say a long time, a partnership, the personality traits might be compliments, but the values usually are aligned because if those don't align, there's going to be some huge disconnects along the way. But the personality differences can make for like interesting uh, linkages of sorts. The values are key there. Now, one thing that comes to mind is uh, you're multi multidisciplinary, more so as compared with um, other individuals. I have talked with individuals from the Santa Fe Institute, which is very multidisciplinary. Can you speak on uh, the value of multidisciplinary research or work? And is it the best way or is it an alternate way that works well in some regards? I think if faced with that binary choice, I would pick your second choice, Armin. I would say that it is the um, alternate way, but but it's like the third way is has many more opportunities and potentialities than any established other that you might be looking at. So one thing I learned largely from working with my colleagues at Cornell who came from many disciplines. I was trained in law, as I said, but they came from history, from sociology, from engineering, from communication, from anthropology, you know, economics, I mean, so other fields. One thing I learned from them was that people say multidisciplinarity without ever thinking, well, what is a discipline anyway? I mean, what is, what is it that this is the multi of, right? So once you start thinking in sociological ways about what a discipline is, you recognize that there are things that tie people inside of disciplines together. And it's something, some agreement about what are the problems that are worth looking at? What is the thing that we look at? I mean, like economics looks at money and exchange and politics looks at politics or political science looks at politics and sociology looks at the structuring of society. History looks at temporality. I mean, so disciplines have some kind of very fundamental agreement that this is what we do. Um, this is what we look at. But beyond that, there are methods, there are shared clusters of 
belief that this instrument is the right one to use in neuroscience, for instance, or, or what have you. And so skill sets develop, professional societies form, and you get these strong clusters and groupings that are bounded off against others in some sense. So disciplines, I'm sure that in your conversations, you've heard the word silo, that disciplines are like silos. And, you know, a silo is too rigid because these are social structures. I think disciplines are more flexible than silos, but there is a truth to it anyway, that disciplines develop their rules of cohesion and become very good at recognizing who's an insider, who's an outsider. The PhD is one of those things. If you don't have a PhD in a field, typically you'll be regarded as an outsider to that field, and they probably won't ever admit you unless there's some you know, real special thing going on. So that you know, led me to wonder about you know, what is the right mental model for thinking about disciplinarity and interdisciplinarity? And I've come down pretty strongly on the archipelago as a model. Uh, so disciplines are like the islands. And so in my mental eye, I don't think of any old archipelago. I think of Indonesia in particular because those islands have such weird shapes, right? I mean, you have long and thin Java and you have weirdly shaped Celebes and you have a big bubble called Borneo. I mean, you know, so these are um, kind of like disciplines that they have their own shapes and sizes. They may have indigenous languages and customs and practices inside of them. And when somebody comes from another island, they look foreign and, you know, a reaction may be to destroy them and keep them even from landing, right? Um, so, but what about the ocean in between? I mean, what about those uncharted areas? Are there other islands to be discovered? And so for me, STS became one of those undiscovered islands. So uh, when I started thinking about it, most of the disciplines that are not STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, uh, they are devoted to looking at some dimension of human creativity and human organization. It's like we humans not just have a capacity to reflect on what why is the world like we think the world is, but also why are we thinking about the world in these ways, right? I mean, so we do literature. And so we've studied the making of literature. I mean, we have English departments and complete departments and literary departments in other fields. And these are all reflections on, first of all, the products of literature, but also the making of literature. I mean, what, why does something count as literary? What makes, how, why is it important to say this has poetic quality or whatever? But if you look around, the one field of human organization and endeavor for which we do not have that critical capacity is STEM. If you look around the universities of this country, there are many more departments that are doing media studies than are doing STEM studies, which is STS. Now that's ridiculous. I mean, you know, the power, I mean, of course I will never denigrate the power of the humanities to change the world. They do change the world. But techniques like putting an implant in the brain that will make somebody with a spinal cord injury walk again this week's news. I saw that. You know, uh, who is looking 
into any dimension of those things systematically. Where are the tools? Where are the cognitive tools? It is a kind of empowerment, right? I mean, so for instance, that story so glorified the kind of miraculous dimension that you had to read between the lines as an STS scholar to find out what exactly was going on. I mean, is this an implant or an external thing? Is it like having, um, you know, a catheterized bag that you have to carry around all the time that could be very uncomfortable? Or is it something like an electrode that is sending signals like a pacemaker that we now absorb into our hearts without thinking very hard about it? And that has its own improvements, right? I mean, so there's a whole element of design, you know, who designs this thing? There's a whole element of law and intellectual property. Is this, I mean, so you've made this person walk. Is it that person's achievement or is it your achievement in making the machine? Is intellectual property distributed between you and the person you cured without whom your invention would be nowhere, right? Because unless you have that, you know, unless you have Lazarus, you don't have Jesus, right? I mean, you know, there's, there's, the, uh, there's that sort of dimension to it. Um, so who is thinking about these things? And this is why I wrote my Ethics of Invention book that you kind of alluded to a while back, um, that I think, and I have, I mean, you, you know, we develop our own ideologies, but I've been doing this business now for, you know, more than 30 years. And I've come to believe deeply that we need uh, structured spaces where STS as a field can reflect on science and technology, that it may have started interdisciplinary, but it has become a necessary field in and of itself. I was going to bring that up about the ethics of invention. Also, by the way, that story quite interesting this week. It makes you think, are they just taking a signal, something like they're strengthening the signal that comes in at, let's say, 20% and then it's up to like a 90% and then the transmitters run through, something like that. I looked at that very interesting one. On the ethics of invention, was your impetus for writing that because uh, science is so quick moving that the thoughts of how this applies, who gets what right, like you just said with the walking, is not generally quick enough to keep up with it. So if there was more of a category to keep up with it, that would be valuable versus in some category where nothing's changed in 400 years, um, adjusting the ethics every three years doesn't make as much sense. Yeah, so again, a really interesting question. And I guess I'm really not in favor of this idea that the that the science and technology are moving fast and we are not adapting and the ethics is lagging because I think the science and technology always fall into a field that is already ethically configured. And so, you know, we allow Facebook to thrive and get very big, partly because we've chosen not to regulate a certain kind of data collection and data mining. I mean, you know, that's a choice that a society made. We kind of decided without an explicit decision that information about our preferences is free, that somebody can gather it and mine it. And we didn't have to decide that. This was you know, part of a kind of market sensibility that we, that we just happened to have. So, so I think that it's not that, it's not that there is no ethics before the science and technology, it's that we may need to revisit 
tacit assumptions we made that we were not even aware of. And then, you know, from there, decide whether we want to reconfigure the rules in some sense. But the book itself, I mean, I was interested when you said that, that back in, um, at episode 204, I think you said was about six, the time, six. or two or six, sorry, uh, was when you were getting into talking to professors. I think people don't sense enough that being a professor, being an intellectual is itself a certain kind of entrepreneurship because the circumstances change and what's important for you to say at what time is not something you have control over. Like how many people knew that back in the middle of 2020, suddenly the Black Lives Matter movement would be made so necessary by something that was brought into everybody's isolated world because we were in the middle of the pandemic by this graphic demonstration of something that we all kind of knew, right? But it gave an intensity to it at that moment. And, you know, it made it necessary for us to respond in certain ways. So the ethics of invention was actually spawned in a funny way. The American Civil Liberties Union was, um, no, sorry, uh, that was wrong. Amnesty International was celebrating its 50th anniversary and wanted to rethink human rights in the light of the developments of the last 50 years. And Amnesty asked my publisher, Norton, to add a book on technology and human rights to its list of books that it was trying to commission. Well, I mean, somehow that series never quite came off, but I had this book contract with Norton because they had approached me. And then I had to think, what do I want to write about? Because I didn't want to write some canned essay on, you know, technology violates privacy, partly because I don't think that that's what happens. I think technology changes us so that we think in different ways about what privacy even is. And, you know, then it's that relationship. So in the end, I called the book Ethics of Invention because it seemed to me that the very process of putting a new thing out there is an ethical moment. It reconfigures the world, it alters possibilities, changes our palette of choices, makes for new uh, lines of responsibility. And so, you know, that book is a kind of reflection on where responsibility lies. And I, I became very tired of the phrase unintended consequences. <laughs> you know, people keep talking about unintended consequences. And it's a shrugging way of avoiding responsibility in some sense. It's like, oh, there was a car crash. Well, it just happened, or a train wreck. But, you know, in the law, which is after all my home field, we go back and ask questions. You know, was it the corporation that was responsible? Was it the materials choice? Did Volkswagen actually program in software that said to the car, that instructed the car, you are now in a test environment and you will emit fewer emissions, but once you're out on the open road, you can forget that test environment and emit more? The answer is yes, Volkswagen did that. So is that an unintended consequence of, of choosing to put in a catalytic converter or something like that? No, I mean, it's, it's human intentionality. And so I prefer to think about these design choices in science, in technology, in society, as times when you need to stop and say, 
what is inside of people's imagination? What is outside of people's imagination? How in a democracy would you broaden the range of thinking so you have a different imagination of the things that are at stake? Right. I was talking with somebody recently about how when you're making a product or you're behind Uber or Lyft, you have to think about every potential thing that people will do with your product, not just what you would like the outcome to be, because once it goes out into the real world, there's application of it and you need to have a guardrail of what you'll allow that nothing can go under that guardrail is what was informed yeah, about. But then it becomes really an interesting process question. How are you going to develop those scenarios that tell you all the different directions? And so one thing I study is the narrowing effects on the imagination. So for instance, if you decide, okay, like in a medical situation, uh, an entire clinical team that's responsible for a patient will get together and talk amongst themselves. And it's a broadening because it's not just the surgeon, it's also the anesthesiologist and you know the pain uh, treatment specialist and maybe the psychologist, I mean, you know, the cardiologist. I mean, so these people will all get together and talk and that's extremely valuable. It's not something that used to happen. You just, you know, went to the surgeon and they took out their calipers and pulled something out. But, but you know, now it's done in a much more elaborated way. But I asked a doctor's student of mine recently, are the guardians of the patient or the next of kin who would be caring for them or long-term caregivers in the room in that clinical conversation? And the answer was no. It's only authorized medical personnel. And there there's a diversification but like the lay perspective, but that is the patient and the patient's own care. Um, they're not in that moment. Um, so, you know, it's, if you extrapolate this out to democracy and to expertise, um, a lot of the work that I do is about how expertise narrows the vision, the field of vision, so that you even lose sight of the fact that there may be other people out there that absolutely have a right to be in your decision-making spaces. That makes me think of like city planning or anything that involves like a city council. There's certain decisions made. And if you don't include them, it's like, okay, this is how we're going to set things up for you guys for the next 20 years, 50 years, whatever it might be. But then the people, the huge chunk of, of people that will be taking part in that or that will impact them they're not there at those settings. It is a little bit odd, actually, thinking about it, that they're not usually taking part. How do you how do you bridge that gap then? If people are used to having uh, expertise rooms and then the outside. So the question of how one bridges the gap between experts and non-experts is also something you know most modern societies have been dealing with that for a long time. One of the prime mandates is that experts give advice, but the political decision maker decides and that political decision maker is subject to electoral constraints. So in, you know, the most basic sort of political theory terms, we've decided that philosophers are not kings. And, you know, so we don't entrust them with the final decision making. But then people obviously are extremely savvy, and they know that politicians are not, uh, eager to override what their experts told them because, you know, it comes back to haunt you. I mean, if it turns out, for instance, that 
the prison psychologist was telling you this this incarcerated person is a recidivist and a violent criminal, and you overlook that and let that person out, and there is a further crime, you know, politicians would not survive that kind of demonstration of overriding expert judgment. So expert judgment has come to play a much more political role in our societal systems than it does in theory. I mean, so it often becomes not just advice, but call to action. So, you know, we do also recognize that that um, um, people can play a role. And, you know, ever since the New Deal, we've created agencies that have an obligation to go back and consult with um, the people that they're regulating. I mean, so you can't pass a regulation, for instance, if you're the Food and Drug Administration on a new medication or, you know, any number EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, on a new environmental standard without going out to the people and getting their commentary. So to the extent there's specialized knowledge out in society, that is a form of crowdsourcing in a sense, and that's built into our process. Does it work in practice? That's a different matter. That is, we have a lot of mechanisms of bridging, but we don't always use them. And there are certain areas where we you know, have let them die through disuse and so on. I mean, you know, how many of us, so our lives are ruled by what happens in the financial sector. How many of us actually know what the Securities and Exchange Commission is actually doing with regard to corporations it's targeting or whatever, and what's happening in antitrust law? I mean, if we tried to know all of this, of course, we'd go nuts because there's too much to know, right? So we delegate responsibility to people to watch over themselves in a sense. And that works a lot of the time if there's integrity in the system, but not always. Yeah. I just thought of like four different life examples where it would be great for individuals who are gonna use that house for many years or medical care will be uh, short, but then the care will be for 20 years. And those moments of, of information would have been useful the whole way but there's like we're done with our thing and on to the next and this person's like okay i'll take what i know and move move from there yeah that's funny time is really an important variable in our lives I mean, right. that is that is having fuller information is very costly somebody has to generate it somebody has to validate it you have to have time if you're the information receiver to receive it to know how to process it you know the, these things are not they're not given in the world. They they all require work. Effort there. And one thing about the future and going 5, 10, 15 years away from when key decisions are made, we don't know all the things that will happen, which comes with an element of uncertainty. And I would like to mention that you have a new book, Uncertainty. I have talked about uncertainty a few times because we as humans are highly tapped into when we are uncertain, it's like our brain is spiking because so much of activity is built on certainty and things being of a regular form. So when something's unknown, it might consume a person's whole day because I have to solve this until this is solved. I can't get to the next step. What realm of uncertainty are you speaking out in your book? Speaking about. Yeah, thanks for that, Armin. So, of course, the overwhelming thing in our lives for the last two years has been the pandemic. Um, and the pandemic is like 
a tapestry of uncertainty. I mean, at any given moment, you can take any moment in these two years and there are lots of things we haven't known uh, that affect our personal behavior. I mean, how risky is it for me to go to the supermarket and buy groceries? Um, the, um, you know, we have, we eventually sort of built a little mental map where it turned out that my husband and I were among the least risk averse that is throughout the pandemic we didn't stop going to supermarkets but that's because you know to some extent i do read medical literature it seemed like transmission in large open spaces and during the height you know if you're masked on top of it that this was not particularly risky in the early days we made a personal choice to go during these sort of senior shopper hours but after a while we stopped doing that because it didn't seem like there was any evidence that that was a major source of of disease transmission but we didn't know right i mean there was no article that would tell me that you know go to your local supermarket between the hours of eight or nine and you will and or go at you know 3 p.m. and your risk will be elevated by this much. I mean, it was just a judgment call that that we needed to make. So these two years have brought home the level of uncertainty that we live with in all kinds of areas. And then with that, the correlative question. So whose job is it in society to make to restore reliability in a sense? because I think that people like leading orderly lives. I mean, you know, people don't like thinking from moment to moment, I don't know what's going to happen next. And if you've already done um, previous shows on this, I mean, you said that, that you know, deep uncertainty can leave you at a loss, not knowing, you know, what where to turn next. So because of the nature of my work, as I thought about these things, I was led into questions about, well, who does? I mean, who is authorized to tell us things? And I've been running a major study of 16 countries and their responses to COVID since about April of last year of, of, um, um, no, not April of last year, it began in 2020. So, you know, it's, we're reaching you know, almost the second anniversary. But it was interesting that many responses differed drastically across countries. So for instance, by and large, the countries that were like islands, like Taiwan, Singapore, Australia, a very big island, and interestingly, China adopted a so-called zero COVID strategy that their purpose was to, their policy purpose was just to make sure there was no COVID whatsoever. Um, And then there were countries that realized that because they had other values and open borders and were not islands anyway, they had to rely, if they wanted to have good policy, they had to rely on the citizens kind of buying into what was sensible policy. And then there were countries where there was such skepticism of any hand of authority or such breakdown in government that there was no hand of authority, that the situation was very chaotic and you really didn't know from one day to the next, you know, what 
rules were going to be in place. So we actually created a typology. This is back in January of 2021, about a year ago, in which we took our 16 countries and we called some of them the containment countries because they were the zero COVID ones, some of them the consensus countries. They were not zero COVID, but they had pretty good public consensus about what to do. And then a third bucket of chaos countries. And the US <laughs> fell into the chaos bucket. Um, so one paradox is that when we went into the pandemic, there was something called the Global Health Security Index, GHSI, which several groups, including people dedicated to nuclear safety, had concocted. So people who were from the public health system and people who were from other disaster management systems. And the US ranked number one. But the US has had more per capita deaths from COVID, COVID I think, than any equally rich country. Certainly, this was true up to the Omicron variant, but I think it remains true. Um, we have the largest single number of deaths of any country. Um, the ratio to population, 100,000 population, is pretty deplorable. And yet the GHSI, the Global Health Security Index, was revised by Johns Hopkins University just recently, like a couple of months ago. We still rank number one. So, we, I mean, there's a gap, right? There's a gap between perceived performance and then this measured performance. Something is out of whack with the metrics. Um, so I think that part of what I was trying to do in this most recent, I hate to call it a book because it's really an essay and it's not even the longest essay I've ever written, but it's been put out by the Boston Review as a book together with some other interesting essays and responses. So it's available as a little book for your audience. Um, but the centerpiece of it for me was this fairly readable, I hope, short essay that says, well, so who was responsible for these disconnects? And what, what is the reason for this gap between the measured capacity and the actual demonstrated capacity to respond under crisis? Um, so what I did was look back at a number of predictive exercises, this Global Health Security Index being one of them, to ask what is it that they were missing out on. And systematically, what they missed out on was the politics. I mean, you don't, you don't take health and just impose it on people. It, something that people, all your listeners may not be aware of is that in this country, we've had constitutional litigation over the rightfulness of vaccine mandates since 1905. I mean, there was a Supreme Court decision in 1905 that ruled that Massachusetts's vaccine mandate was against smallpox was justified, that it was a justifiable public health measure. But people have challenged these kinds of mandates. It's not just vaccines, it's other things, disclosures and behavioral um, quarantines, you know, things of that sort. Um, during the HIV AIDS epidemic, for instance, many people questioned these. People have questioned them in connection with TB and how long and how deep quarantines should go. So. It's, I think the real set of questions here is what sorts of uncertainties get ruled out of the field of vision 
and yet they are ones that should concern us. What are the things we don't know and that we should know? Um, the late Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, had this term that he popularized, the unknown unknowns, you know, that things so not known that we don't even know that we don't know, right? So it's a, like a, um, I mean, as I've said elsewhere, that if you go back and read that passage, it reads sort of like a haiku because it's sort of mysterious and it has, there are the known knowns and the unknown knowns and the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. I mean, you know, it has a, almost a little poetic ring to it. But it's, it's a kind of um, problem area for society. It goes back to our discussion of disciplines. Disciplines are pretty good at recognizing problems that the discipline is attuned to recognizing. So a new social formation emerges and sociologists are onto it immediately um, yeah. because they see it in their field of vision. But the unknown unknowns are more peculiar. So it took a while for the discrepant impact of COVID on racial and ethnic groups to become apparent. It took still longer to recognize that um, air pollution, hotspots, and COVID occurrence and death hotspots often coincided. Now, why is that so? So environmental justice, which is one of those fields that I teach, says that there is a heaping up of bad things in particular communities that are either too poor to resist or too politically disempowered to resist. Uh, so you get this sort of co-location of hazards. And the fact that you have, say, an air pollution hotspot often has has to do with the socioeconomic backdrop that the polluting industries went there and not somewhere else and they don't have the capacity to fight back in some sense they don't have the tax revenues they can't disincentivize people they can't incentivize people to clean up their acts and so forth you know if my high school degree is from scarsdale new york and that has a resonance with many people because it's one of America's wealthiest communities. I don't think people would think of putting a nuclear power plant in Scottsdale, New York. But why not? You know, um, why don't we invert the wheel and say that the richest communities are the ones that ought to receive the most hazardous things? There would be a very good set of economic reasons because these are the people with the most power to insist on the highest standards of cleanliness, because these are the people with the greatest access to educational resources so they would be able to fact find more and maybe develop more research around these things. But you go tell that as a policy prescription to somebody and see what will happen, right? I mean, so, so there are these kinds of um, questions about why are the unknowns even unknown? Uh, that lead us back into political analysis. And, you know, so those are the, so in thinking about uncertainty, I was fixated on why, in part, on why are we more uncertain about some things than others? Do we actually have some knowledge that would allow us to reduce the uncertainty? And sometimes we do, but we're not even looking at that because, you know, we're not even looking at the problem in some sense.
when you just described that example of putting the nuclear power plant in a well-off area and how those individuals would have the best ability to manage and handle that made me think of, I recently spoke about how if someone's at the center of a group, they actually care more about the group. They have to put in more effort to get people involved in something to make a change. They have to be on top of the change for weeks or months. And even though they might look like the oppose, opposing person or enemy, it takes a lot more to be that for the group. And so that relates to who would best be able to bring some sort of positive change is not probably the person who is in a place where their air quality is worse or the weather is uh, out of whack or we have regular pollution or something like that. Yeah. This is partly why I talk to people like you because, you know, I'm at the top of such a pinnacle in a sense. I mean, because who has these resources and positions at universities like mine, but I think that then you have to fight the battles to get the the critical component, you know, back into our thinking in a sense. One thing that comes to mind as far as, by the way, thanks on that. That's very cool. It's a relatedness of long live uh, sharing of concept. One thing that comes to mind as far as the uncertainty of the pandemic, I am quite a bit of a fan of punctuated equilibrium and those times when things are shaken up because then a lot of things get showcased that might not have been. Would you say there is value in that where when something is shocking or a surprise or an unknown unknown or even maybe a possibly known unknown that's not really predicted well, do you suddenly start to see which country is what, what kind of people are who, who the power um, groupings are? Does that show up? Yeah, that, no, that's, um, I mean, again, you may be amused to know that I think of that metaphor. I mean, punctuated equilibrium is, you know, my late colleague, Stephen Jay Gould, was one of the people who propounded it, as you know. Um, uh, but it's not just part of evolutionary biology, it's also a good metaphor, because I think we do go through periods of relative rest and relative unrest. And so one way I think of it is that in those equilibrium moments, there are often things brewing under the surface that eventually burst out, and that those are good times to take stock of where the sort of just unsatisfactory social conditions, in a sense, are, are brewing. Um, but we don't often do that. We tend to be very placid when things are good, right? I mean, so you could think of the early 90s as having been a period of that sort because, oh, look, the Iron Curtain fell, the free market prevailed, and Francis Fukuyama wrote, you know, end of history. And, you know, so now we can just relax. And then we got 9-11, you know, almost exactly a decade later. But could we not have known that the, you know, what should the scenario builders have been doing in that time? That in a sense, the bipolarity of the world had created a set of structures that were driving a lot of things. I mean, they were driving technological development, they were driving scientific interests, they were driving education policy, et cetera. And you suddenly take one piece I mean, one side of that polarity of forces off the table, at least for a while, and what do you get? Um, so, but we're not, we're not very good at, you know, sort of thinking about the equilibrium and the chaos or the turbulence together. 
I mean, we're either sort of, our institutions tend to be either catastrophist, I mean, so they're always predicting for the worst case scenario, or they're complacent or bought, I mean, you know, whatever, and are not thinking of much of anything. Um, so I think that those of us who are in the education business, broadly speaking, you know, we have a, a particular responsibility there to make sure that in these times when things seem placid, that we don't stop thinking as societies. And I mean, I guess my short little methodological answer to this is keep thinking of silences. I mean, so always when you're thinking of what is being discovered, also think correlatively about what is not or what is being expressed. Think about what is not being expressed. Um, and it turns out that what may not be being expressed in your place or your context may be quite healthily being expressed in somebody else's. I mean, this is true of the global north and the global south, that the global north has sort of individualized climate change as a matter of individual behavior. And the global south says, sorry, no, it's in a history of extraction and subjugation and so forth. And, and these two frames or ways of leading the world may of reading the world may lead to different prescriptions for how you should act within it. So I think that this idea that we go through these calm phases may be deceptive because it's calm for us or it's not calm outside of our window, but we're inside and we see things in certain ways. Um, and I think that my view of um, research and education to some extent is to, um, you know, find the problem spots, the sort of spikiness, where are things not gaining expression, where are things um, not articulate that ought to be articulated, and can I, with the help of my students and colleagues, find voices to give, you know, some expression to these things so that things don't come at us always as a shock that we, to some extent, have been thinking ahead. I often think about those flat moments and then the moments of shock. But during the flat moments, it's not just me. It's a lot of individuals who they feel things, but there's like a propellant force going on. So, okay, I'll go with the propellant force because countering is like countering an ocean wave. But at some point that ocean wave uh, crashes or turns around and then now everybody's suddenly like, okay, we saw this, but we couldn't really do anything prior to this. Now it's time to adjust our the rocks in the water or whatnot. What might you tell someone as a message for them about uncertainty or the average person? What might they do to be more prepared for five, 10 years from now if uncertainty irks them? So I, I think that, I mean, this is a very challenging question and I haven't got a packaged answer, but let me think on the spot with you. Okay. One question to ask, is it your uncertainty or everybody's uncertainty? Because I think the answers may differ if somebody else has certainties that parallel your uncertainties, including on questions of who are the winners and who are the losers going to be. And, you know, so I think that talk to the other, the people who might have a different view. Um, 
I think it's important to realize that we're telling ourselves stories all the time. And so the stories we tell ourselves about how we overcome other moments of uncertainty or why, how other people have overcome them, it's not necessarily just a question of overcoming. It's also partly a question of, of how you act in the world. So my students, you know, they're students and they don't have their careers cut out in front of them. And so they're facing huge life uncertainties because will universities be the same? You know, will the tenure system be revoked? I mean, will I find a job that's consistent with other desires I may have? I mean, even in my personal life, am I going to end up satisfied, dissatisfied? I, you know, it's a, one way out of that is, okay, think on the long time horizon. But if you shorten the time horizon, then the choices are often much more clear. And you know, the, what you should do tomorrow may not be so uncertain. And letting the long-term uncertainty overwhelm the short-term somewhat greater certainty is an important thing. Um, not to allow that to happen. The future tsunami gets you to stop, you know, building the seawall today in some sense. Um, so adjust the time and space balance so that you don't lose your sense of agency, so that you don't lose the sense that you can take actions in the moment. Which actions should you take? That brings us right back to ethics. And, you know, I really believe that you have to keep asking yourself, you know, what do I believe is right? And am I right in believing that these things are right? And what should I do to hone my own self-judgment about what is right and what is wrong? And then take the steps that appear to lead in the direction, not just of problem-solving rightness, do I have the right equation and the right model and will I get the right answer, but also the you know, am I doing the best possible and for whom? Who's objectives and orders am I following? Am I, have I treated them with, you know, due curiosity and so forth? So I think that those, those prescriptions, you know, ask yourself uncertain for whom, and if somebody else is certain, ask why. Shorten the space and time of action so that you are not left without agency. And inspect your own morality so that the ethical position, the, you know, being an ethical person is sort of part of your, your manner of being at all times. I like that message of connecting the time sense to that because I've seen that much fear in individuals comes from uh, being short-term when a long-term item would give you peace or looking at the long term out of worry when the short term is what can be handled it's like ex extra fear that didn't need to be there in the first place it's a wonderful message encapsulated there i would like to say professor sheila jazanoff i would like to thank you for having joined on this episode of the show describing items from uncertainty connecting back to the ethics of invention and giving us some of your backstory that led to where you are today. Thank you, Armin. I was delighted to be with you. And um, thanks also to your present and future audiences. This is a wonderful thing. Glad for these moments. And we are out.